Well, um, <clears throat> can I um, ask you to uh, turn in your notice sheet to the inside, you'll find an outline, and uh, I'm going to begin by praying and then we'll get down to work. Heavenly Father, as we've just sung, uh, we do believe that you speak through your word, and we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now, as we turn to this book that you've given us, uh, so that we might know the Lord Jesus and his salvation better. Please open our eyes to great truths, help us to concentrate, help us to work hard, uh, so that in this next uh, half an hour or so, we will be informed uh, as to how to read this book and the great blessing that we will receive as we do so. Father, we pray for our children who are also studying uh, this book today and this term. Uh, we pray for the grub group leaders, that you might give them all the help they need uh, to instruct and to teach, uh, so that our children are built up in the Lord Jesus. We ask this for his sake. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to take a break from our usual pattern of expounding one passage of the Bible in depth, and do something a bit different. We're going to take uh, the entire sweep of a whole book. And it's particularly appropriate that we begin this way for this book, because Revelation, as you may know, is an unusual book. It's full of symbols and imagery and details, which we find difficult to understand at first. And the most helpful thing that we can do before we look at those details, which we will do in the coming weeks, is to simply understand at the big picture level, what the book is about, how to read it, how not to read it, how it fits together, and how we will benefit from reading it. In fact, what I want to do this morning is really a bit of debunking, a bit of demystifying, because I think over time a whole aura of mystery and misunderstanding has unfortunately grown up around the book of Revelation. And as Andy said, it's kind of put it out of the reach of most Bible readers. Most Christians just think it's too difficult. And so we leave it on the too hard shelf. So my aim this morning is to try and demystify the book a little bit and to try and show you that with a few basic tools and principles, we can make sense of the book. We won't make sense of every single detail. There are some bits that are still difficult but we can grasp its message. So let's begin with the question, why read the book of Revelation? That might seem obvious, given given that it's here in our Bibles, and given that we believe, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. But not everyone in church history would agree that the book should be here in the first place. The book of Revelation was, in fact, the last book to be recognized by the early Christians, probably because it had been abused so much by the cults of the day. It had been tarred with a particular brush in the first few centuries. Even in the 16th century, Martin Luther said that he could in no way detect that the Holy Spirit had produced it. And Calvin who wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation and Esther, said that anyone who claimed to understand it was mad. But even now, many centuries after Christians have recognized that it should be in the Bible, it has generally been met by two extreme and opposite reactions among Christians. I wonder if you can identify which of these uh, camps you're in, if you're in one of the two. 
Uh, Some Christians are obsessed with Revelation. Just as was the case in the early church, Revelation continues to be the happy hunting ground for heretics of all kinds. It is the book that is most loved by the cults, who mine it for every wacky idea that they want to find. It is the most abused book in the Bible. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, what they really want you to read is their magazine, but failing that, they'll turn you to the book of Revelation. The reason for that is because if you miss the point of the book, it is one of those parts of the Bible that you really can make it say whatever you want, pretty much. So some people are obsessed with the book. On the other hand, other people, I think this applies more to us in our circles, just ignore it. It's too confusing, too complicated, too obscure, And after all, we don't want people to think we're mad because we claim to understand it. So two extreme reactions, one obsessed and fanatical, the other disinterested and apathetic. In fact, the book itself tells us what our attitude should be. It tells us why and how we should read it. So let's see how the book introduces itself. So this is Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. If you've got a Bible, it's the last book in the Bible, so it's quite easy to find. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, And has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We're also going to read chapter 22, verses 16 to 21.
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Thanks, Andy. Well, the two sections we've just read are not there at the beginning and in the end because that's just where they happen to be put. They have been written very deliberately to introduce and conclude the book. They introduce us to the main characters and themes, and they tell us how and why we should read it. They provide the theological framework for the book. The way to think about these sections is is like the pair of spectacles that we are to put on to help us to read the book, and they're worth careful study. The prologue guides the reader into the book, sets up various expectations, gives us rules and principles, And the epilogue corrects any misunderstandings we may have picked up and helps us to respond to what we have read in the right way. For now, I just want to draw your attention to three reasons why we must read Revelation uh, from these sections. Firstly, because it is a revelation, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book is called Revelation, or The Revelation, not Revelations, as people seem to call it, Because it is just that. A Greek word that you may have heard in association with the book, possibly because of the Mel Gibson film of the title or another famous film about the Vietnam War, is apocalypse. It has come to mean, in English, the end-time conflict or cataclysm of some kind in popular usage, but that's not what it means. Apocalypse just means revelation. That is the word In verse 1, the apocalypse of John, the revelation of John. And it just means that here is an unveiling, a revealing, a showing. Therefore, we need to work on the assumption right from the start that the book was written to be intelligible. The book was written to reveal, to be clear, to be understood not to hide or confuse or mystify. And I think that's a really important, although perhaps obvious, thing to say. Yes, there are difficulties, but the difficulties in understanding some of the references have to do with our time distance from the original readers, not because John was trying to be difficult. So that's the assumption I'm going to make as we proceed uh, this term, is that it's not meant to be a mystery. It's meant to be a revelation. It is not full of hidden secrets. It is a revelation, an unveiling. Secondly, it's a revelation, notice, from God. 
And in verse 1, you'll see a chain of revelation. It begins with God, verse 1, who gave his revelation to Jesus Christ, who made it known by sending his angel to the apostle John. And John testifies, another revelation word. He shares it, he broadcasts it, he distributes it to the churches to whom he writes. And so what he writes is like any other part of the Bible. Verse 2, it is the word of God the testimony of Jesus Christ. I like Martin Luther, but this time we have to say he is wrong. And the Apostle John, and I'm assuming for now that he is the Apostle John who's writing to us, must be right. This is the word of God, and so we must listen to it carefully. The third reason to read Revelation is because of a particular promise that we are given and the effect the book will have on us. Have a look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. It's very unusual in the New Testament to get a reference directly to the reader of a book. It's rather intriguing. But look carefully with me at verse 3 because it contains a remarkable promise. As we'll see in a moment, there are many theories about how we ought to read the book involving all kinds of knowledge and information from outside the book, either from the past or from the future. But look at what John says in verse 3. He says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. The method then is not to dig down into past history in order to understand it, or to work out and pinpoint how the book refers to things in the future and to come up with some kind of code that unravels the puzzle, John wants us just to read it. And, verse 3, to hear it. And by that, presumably, he means that whether it's read in private or more likely read in a public gathering of the church, it is supposed to be understood when it's heard or read. But look at what else he says, verse 3. Reading is not enough. The message must be taken to heart, literally kept, which means obeyed. So the most important thing we can do in order to understand this book is to come to it with the right attitude, seeking the right thing. The manner in which it must be read is not to seek knowledge or secrets or special information about the future, but the manner that we read the rest of the Bible, to know God and the Lord Jesus Christ and to obey him. And we'll do that urgently because the time is near. And John says that the result of that kind of reading will be blessing. What is this blessing? Well, of course, it depends on what you think the message and purpose of the book is, doesn't it? If you think the message and purpose of the book is to give us certain pieces of information about human history or to match up details of the book with events like the Second World War or Adolf Hitler or the the world is going to end in 2023 or that the next president's name is encoded in 666, then the blessing you get from reading the book is knowledge of those things. And I don't know about you, but that does not make me want to work hard and read this book. Once we have understood the message of the book, 
we'll see that the blessing promised is infinitely greater than that kind of knowledge. But remember, as we saw in chapter 22, there is not only the promise of blessing, there is also a warning. Have a look again at the end of chapter 22. I warn everyone, verse 18, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, and of course it's talking about the book of Revelation, not the Bible, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So there is a promise of blessing, But as you leave the book in chapter 22, there is the warning of judgment for not taking to heart the message of the book. So there is a tremendous life and death reason for reading this book. We're not here because of curiosity. We're here to know the truth and the truth about life and death. Well, let's think then about how to read the book of Revelation. Why don't you flip back with me to chapter 1 again. As we saw in verse 3, the way to read it is to read it. And I want to say as well, to re-read it and become better and better at reading it. It's not our job to interpret the Bible. And interpreting is a very dangerous word to use in our postmodern culture. Because whose interpretation is right? Our job is to read it as accurately as we can and to understand it. And the great news is that the book, the Bible, provides its own tools and clues to help us to do that. So let me just mention four such clues that will help us to read and understand the book of Revelation. The first is context. It has been rightly said that if you ignore context, you can make the Bible say pretty much anything you like. But what do I mean by context? Well, there's two contexts to mention. Firstly, the biblical context. Revelation is part of the Bible. We can expect its message, therefore, to be the same as the message of the rest of the Bible. So as we come to this book, we are not going to be learning great new truths that we don't already know from elsewhere in the Bible. We're going to be seeing the same truths from a different angle. And I want to say that there are really no new big ideas in this book that you wouldn't hear from Romans, that you wouldn't hear from Mark or John or 1 Corinthians or Ephesians. We're going to see those same truths from a different angle. That's a tremendously important thing to say to help us to read the book. And at the same time, the things we're going to see there are deeply rooted in the Old Testament. So the better you are at reading the Bible overall, the better you'll understand the book of Revelation. That is a great help and protection for us as we read. It means that we should expect the main message of the Bible to be the main message of the book of Revelation. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming and growth of his kingdom, the death and resurrection with which he redeemed the church by his blood will be the central message of this book. And it means we'll be wary of people who claim that the book is about something else. There's the first and most important context. The second context is the historical context into which the book was written. 
Another common mistake that people make when reading the, book, uh, the books of the Bible, particularly this book, is to read it as if it were directly related, directly written to us. It is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So look at verse 4 in chapter 1. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. There are the people to whom the book is written. John says his letter, and it is a letter, has been written to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Of course, that's not Asia as in Japan and China, it's modern-day Turkey. Real churches in a real historical context, and the number seven suggests that he's writing to the totality of all the churches in the province of Asia. And we need to remember that originally the book was written for them in their historical context. So what do we know about that context? Well, if you glance over to verse 9, you'll see the whole problem in a nutshell. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John had the vision he is about to record while on the island of Patmos. Today, people have holidays on Patmos. Anybody been to Patmos? No? Gather it is a very nice place. Uh, but John was not there for a holiday. He was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was a prisoner on a prison island for preaching and believing the gospel. In other words, John is being punished as a criminal for being a Christian. But verse 9 also tells us that this was not unusual. It's clear that John is writing at a time of persecution for Christians. Look with me at what he says are theirs in Christ. This is what you get if you become a Christian. This is the banner headline advert, the package Become a Christian and these things are yours. Look at what you get. You get suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. Suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. We'll look at those more closely in two weeks' time. But for now, notice that that is the banner headline. These Christians were suffering for being Christian. And the rest of the letter and other parts of the Bible... And what we know of the historical context suggests that there were three particular problems being faced by Christians. We haven't got time to spell these out. We'll see them as we go along. But the three problems very briefly were, number one, vicious persecution by non-Christian Jews. Number two, infiltration of heretics into the churches. And three, the demand to worship the Roman emperor and consequent punishment for those who refused. Those are the three particular forms of suffering for Christians at this time. Now, we need to be careful here to make sure we understand the place of this historical background. What am I saying and what am I not saying? Well, what I am saying is that understanding the historical background is useful because the book was not written to us directly. And it's especially important that we listen to the clues the book gives about that background. But what I am not saying is that we must become experts on the extra-biblical evidence in order to understand this book, or any other part of the Bible for that matter. 
And I would say we should beware of people who claim that this particular bit of evidence from outside the Bible gives us a key to interpreting a part of the Bible. I wonder if we could have uh, one of the doors open, uh, Andy. It's just getting a little bit warm in here. At least I'm, I'm warm. Perhaps it's just me. Um, but I, I don't want us falling asleep. Um, you may remember the, uh, the uh, story Jesus tells about, or the parable Jesus tells about, the camel going through the eye of the needle to show how hard it is for rich people to enter uh, the kingdom of God. And for years and years, this myth grew up that there was a doorway, a gateway in Jerusalem, that a camel could only fit through if it took its backpack off, or if the owner took its backpack off, with the idea being that explained what Jesus was saying. So for, for years and years and years, this myth grew up that if you understood that bit of historical information, you would understand the parable. And I am not saying that. I'm saying we don't need that kind of information because what Jesus meant is clear from the context itself. However, it is useful in illuminating, but beware of people who claim deep insights based on extra-biblical historical evidence. The most important evidence is right before our eyes. Well, let's take an example of how this context helps us. One of the things John is doing is he's helping the persecuted Christians to view their historical situation rightly. And he does that by parodying. Now, every morning, uh, when I've uh, sort of done a few other things and checked my emails and so on, I treat myself to about five minutes uh, on the Daily Telegraph website. And I must admit, the first thing I look at, and sometimes the only thing, is the Matt cartoon. That's usually enough for me in terms of sort of you know, political uh, information for the day. And what the, uh, the Matt cartoon does, and all newspaper cartoons do this, they, they parody what is going on in politics, give you a bit of a laugh. They put two things side by side and say, well, you know, all these politicians are taking this ever so seriously, but actually this is what's going on and we can expose it. And some of the images in the book of Revelation are like a political cartoon. They're a parody, a grotesque parody of what is going on in society. And he places them side by side with the gospel. And he says to the Christians, look what is actually happening in your world. And he does this not to make them laugh, but to encourage the suffering Christians. You see, just put yourself for a moment, if you can... And it's very hard for us because our lives are so free, aren't they, of this kind of suffering. But imagine if you're a Christian and you are literally in danger of your life, of being burned at the stake or fed to the lions, that your home might be ransacked by soldiers at any moment, that your children might be taken away into slavery. What do you need to know? How do you need to see the world to help you continue? Or what do you need to know if you're a Christian in northern Nigeria at the moment? Your pastor has been murdered. Your church building has been burnt down. And you've been told that if you gather together, you'll be bombed to smithereens. That is real. That's really happening in our world today, isn't it? What do those Christians need to know? Well, you need to know where the real power is, don't you? You need to know, are those people doing this really in control? Have they won? Has Jesus lost, after all? You need to know the spiritual realities behind the situation of the day. Do you remember the uh, scene at the end of The Wizard of Oz? 
when the curtain is pulled back and the great and terrible wizard, who everyone has feared and everyone has obeyed, is finally exposed for what he is. A little old man pulling strings to work a puppet from behind a curtain. Well, John is just doing that for the persecuted Christians. He's pulling back the curtain to show us what is really happening behind the scenes of history. He's not telling us what is going to happen at particular points. He's saying this is what is going on now. For example, the beast in chapter 13 is the Roman Empire. Those who worship the beast are contrasted with those who refuse to worship the beast and who worship the lamb instead. It seems that he's got such power. The Roman emperor to whom people would bow and people had to call him Lord and God. And although it seems that he's got such power, when the curtain is pulled back, you see actually he's just been given that power by God. And while it seems that the church is in his clutches, it seems that the church on earth is in danger, actually the curtain is pulled back. We see the church has always been safe if they continue to follow the Lamb. And so what the book is doing is pulling back the scenes, revealing so that we see what is going on behind human history, so that we see who really rules the world. And the purpose of that is always to encourage suffering Christians to keep going, to help them to endure to the end when the kingdom finally comes. And so the way the reader is to respond to Revelation is to keep going, to keep trusting, to keep following the Lamb, no matter how hard and painful and dangerous the attacks of the day are. And it's interesting that it's at those times and places in the world where Christians have been most under attack that this book has been most enjoyed. I suspect that one of the reasons we don't enjoy the book, we don't appreciate the book, is that we know very little relatively of that kind of pressure, that kind of persecution. Well, turn now to chapter 13 and 14, and Andy's going to read us an example of this. So we're starting with the second half of verse 1 in chapter 13. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words, and blasphemies, and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God, and to slander his name and his dwelling place, and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints, and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, 
people, language, and nation, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. We're also going to read from um, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So you can see how you... Excuse me. If you put those two together, um, and it's helpful, isn't it? It doesn't. You don't need to be an expert in Roman history to see uh, how chapter thirteen applies to people in Roman times. Um, but you don't need to leave it there. Secondarily, it applies to any human government, doesn't it? And any persecuted people. And then when you read chapter fourteen, you realise actually the spiritual reality. Uh, no matter how bad things are, the reality is that you are safe if you belong to the Lamb. So there's the first clue then, the first uh, uh, tool to help us is context. The second is code or the codes. Um, This concerns the fact that although it is a letter, Revelation is written in a particular style. It is full of symbolism, images, strange beasts and animals and numbers, uh, which we can assume the first readers were perfectly familiar with. That's an important assumption. So when you go into a bookshop and you pick up a particular genre of book, maybe a John Grisham book or an Agatha Christie book or something like that, you don't have to be told how to read it. You know that if you turn to the last chapter, the plot will be spoiled. That's a convention of reading. And similarly, we can assume that the people who read this would know the conventions. It wasn't meant to be a secret. It was meant to be revealed. And because of the distance in time, we just have to work a little bit harder to work out the conventions, what the clues mean. We read them in context, we try them out, we build up a picture. And some of them are not too difficult. Let me just run through a few examples. Firstly, numbers are especially important. And I like this because I'm no good at maths, and uh, most people use numbers for maths, but it's a delight to find that numbers can be used for other things other than adding up. In fact, in the ancient world, in the book of Revelation, numbers are symbolic. Uh, If you come from certain backgrounds, you'll be very familiar with symbolic numbers. So, for example, three is used for repetition, just to emphasize something. Holy, 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 for example. Seven, the most important number in the book. The ideal, uh, perfect number. I don't feel you've got to write all these down. I can uh, email them around if that's helpful. Um, seven, suggesting perfection or completeness. It's the divine number, the eternal number. That is the key number to the whole book. Six, well, what is six? 
Six, as far as I can work out, is seven minus one, uh, suggesting imperfection. In fact, suggesting an absence of good or suggesting evil. Four is the whole of creation, the four corners of the world. Ten is a big number. Ten means bigness. Twelve is the number of God's people, the twelve tribes of Israel. You also have 24, which is really the Jews and the Gentiles together. And so you can start adding up combinations of numbers. So 666, it shouldn't be too difficult. We've seen that 6 is a bad number. 3 is a lot of something. So 666 is a very evil number. Uh, 3.5 is half of 7. So if 7 stands for eternity, then half of eternity... What's half of eternity? Well, half of eternity is, is human history, as far as I can work out, in contrast to eternity. 42... It's the number of months in three and a half years, so it's another word for human history, as is 1,260, the number of days in three and a half years. These come out particularly in chapter 11. 1,000 is 10 cubed, uh, a very big number, the superlative number. 144, 12 times 12, it's the entire people of God. And then we've got animals. Uh, Again, these are fairly easy. Uh, The lion signifies strength, Uh, The lamb, weakness, vulnerability, sacrifice. Uh, The eagle is speed. Ox is strength. Mankind, wisdom. Fairly self-expansive when you read them in context. Then there are a few other things that are useful to know. Uh, I stands for knowledge. Uh, The horn, uh, all throughout the Bible, stands for power. Um, A right hand is authority. The uh, colors are interesting as well. Color white stands for conquest. Uh, The throne, rule, the sea, again, all over the Bible stands for chaos. Uh, The beast and the prostitute stand for human government. So there's a little uh, sort of general overview of the most important codes in the book, and they're not difficult to work out. Notice that the codes are not to be taken literally. Again, another big mistake people make. So the Jehovah's Witnesses will knock on your door. They'll tell you there's a literal 144,000 people in heaven. But, of course, a simple bit of common sense reading the book will tell you 144,000, 12 is the people of Israel, 12 twelves are 144, times by 1,000, which is the ultimate number. It's just a lot of people. That's all it means, a lot of people, the complete chosen people of God reigning with Christ. Uh, Similarly, the 1,000-year reign of Christ in Revelation 20 has uh, tripped a lot of people up. But by the time you get to chapter 20, you know that a thousand years is just a long period of time. That millennial period is the rule of Christ between his resurrection and his return. And reading them literally is at odds with the way John intended them to be read. Well, let's come then to a bit more detail. And this time the third clue is the content. Uh, That is, we need to grasp the big picture of how the book works, what its shape is, how John tells the story he is telling in order for us then to go back in future weeks and understand the details. Now, you may have heard the old joke about economists. Uh, If you get 10 economists in the same room, you'll get 20 opinions about the state of the economy. Uh, Well, the same goes for preachers and scholars when it comes to the structure, the outline of the book of Revelation. There is very little agreement... Uh, in the commentaries, in the books, among preachers and so on, and many gallons of ink have been spilt on the structure of Revelation, the shape of Revelation. So to save you all that hassle, let me tell you the right one. 
or at least the one that I found convincing uh, this week, and uh, the one that we'll be studying as we, as we, following as we study the book. I'm suggesting this as a way of helping us to, to think about the book. Uh, you'll be able to look at it during the week, and I hope you will, and find all sorts of flaws and all sorts of imperfections and things you want to change. But here is a start to help us get a big picture, a big handle on the book, and it's the best one uh, that, that I've become convinced of over the years. Um, and as I suggest this outline, this uh, structure, I'm working on the principles that we've already seen, uh, that it's a book of revelation. It is not meant to be hard and confusing. If you want to go away this week and come up with an incredibly complex structure that resembles the hymns in the 16th century or the letters of the, you know, Bill Clinton's middle name or something like that, you can do it. Anybody can do that. It's very, very easy to come up with a very complex structure uh, that, that fits uh, certain details. But I'm working on the principle that is, this book was read to be heard in a live audience and to be understood. And therefore, I think the structure is going to be nowhere near as complicated as people think. And the other uh, principle that we're working on is that the message of the book is the familiar message of the gospel seen from a different angle. So let's uh, think about this uh, layout then. We've looked already at the prologue and the epilogue. And Anthony will just put the chapters on the screen so we can see what we've covered. We've already looked at the prologue and the epilogue. We'll come back to chapters 2 and 3 in a moment. Uh, They are very different and special, and we'll mention them a bit later on. So we come now to chapters 4 and 5. And chapters 4 and 5 are the theological engine room of the book. They are the beginning of the long vision that goes from chapter 4 to chapter 20. So have a look at how, or possibly 21. Have a look how they begin, chapter 4. After this, I looked, chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. We will learn how the door came to be opened. And a voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. So John is taken up into heaven, into the throne room of the universe the center of reality, and and he's outside time here. He's outside human history. So this scene in chapter 4 and 5 is about God in heaven, sitting on his throne, presiding over creation, surrounded by the citizens of heaven. Before we see the disorder and violence of human history, there is this moment of order and rule and perfection and fulfillment. But from this eternal throne room in heaven, from this place of peace and control and serenity, there is emanating a storm of judgment. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Now that sort of seismic activity is picked up and repeated at certain points in the book at certain key points in the book, and each time expanded and intensified. So flip over to 8 verse 5. 8 verse 5. 
The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. So it's the same storm coming from the throne, but this time it's greater. Then 1119, 1119. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within the temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumble, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. And then finally, 1618. 1618. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. So these four references to that storm of judgment emanating from the throne, spreading out to encompass the vision that follows and runs all the way to chapter 20. In other words, whatever else we can say about chapters 6 to 20, the theme is God's judgment on the earth. When does the judgment come? It comes in human history. Chapter 6 to 20 is about ongoing human history. So what have we seen so far? 4 and 5 is in heaven. Uh, 6 to 20 are on the earth. And uh, that is simplistic. You'll find all sorts of problems with it, but it's a start. Now, the one thing you cannot really miss, however, is that in 6 to 20, we have three series of sevens describing that judgment. And I want to encourage you to read the book this week or in the next couple of weeks if you can. It took me 50 minutes to read it at a sort of ordinary pace just the other day, reading it out loud, in fact. Uh, just 50 minutes is all you need. And read it and test this out and refine it and, and see if uh, this is a help. Don't just take my word for it. But there are three series of sevens describing tyranny, chaos, conflict, suffering, persecution, and destruction. And the three series of sevens are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And again, in keeping with that increasing storm, they are growing in intensity as the book continues. So that alone, I think, just helps us to kind of marshal a lot of the details and a lot of the information. Now, many readers would say that after the sixth element, so the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, the sixth bowl, there is an interlude, a kind of interruption, and that's okay, I'm relatively happy with that. But I think it's easy to say that the sixth element actually extends for longer than the other elements and overlaps with the first element of the next series. So... Don't look for too neat structures in the book of Revelation. He has this tendency to overlap. Think of movements rather than sections. So let's just see how this works and uh, uh, see if you can follow with me. We'll do some very fast Bible flipping. So chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. So there's a very clear marker, isn't it? Here's a new thing. Here's the new part, the seals. Uh, We then get the content of the seal, verse 2, and we move quite quickly through the seals, verse 3, the second seal is open, and so until verse 12, when the sixth seal is opened, and the contents of opening the sixth seal extend, I would say, all the way to chapter 7. Some people would say it's an interlude, I'm saying the seal continues to the end of chapter 7. 
Then in chapter 7, verse 1, the seventh seal is opened, and its effects are felt until verse 5, and then immediately the trumpet series begins. So chapter 8, verse 7, the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burnt up, a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. Then the other trumpets follow, verse 8, uh, 10, 12, 9, verse 1, 13. And then the seventh trumpet is sounded in eleven fifteen, and the effects of that trumpet are felt all the way to 15, verse 5. And then the bowls of wrath are introduced. The seventh bowl is poured out upon the earth in 1617, and the effects of that are felt and described right to the end of the vision. I'm not sure when this ends. Uh, Is it in chapter 21? Is it chapter 22, verse 6? I'm not quite sure yet. But the seventh bowl leads into and overlaps with the vision of the new creation in 21 and 22, uh, the future consummation of all that God has planned, the other side of judgment. And so 21 and 22 bring us back into eternity, into what will be once the work of Christ is finished and finally revealed and when he comes again. Now, if you've followed that so far, a big question that I think you want to ask is how do those series of sevens relate together? What is the relationship between those three series of sevens? And again, here's a place people go wrong. Many people think that they are chronological, that they happen end to end. So you have the seals, and then you have the trumpets, and then you have the bowls, one after another. So the effects of one comes to an end, and then they start, and it's a straight-line projection of history in advance. And it's on this basis that people are forever looking for details that match our history. So here's an event in Revelation, and oh, it matches the fall of the Soviet Union or something like that. This is a big mistake. The series do not follow one another end on end. They overlap each other. They are to be read simultaneously as general descriptions of human history in the present time before the end. So read them as layers, not lines. It is the nature of God's judgment, not the timing that we are to be interested in. The visions present recurring images with greater and greater intensity. So, for example, when the second trumpet sounds, one-third of the sea turns to blood and one-third of the sea creatures die. When the second bowl is poured out, all the sea turns to blood, all the sea creatures die. The effect is to underline the judgment, to turn the screw in emphasis. And this means that the chaos and tyranny and persecution they describe as God pours out his judgment upon the human race are being experienced now in history, something that is in keeping with the rest of the New Testament. And what John does is he pulls apart these three strands and holds them up for us to look at one at a time and says this is what Christians are living through now. Well, that leaves us with chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, and they stand out like a sore thumb uh, from the rest of the book. And I think the best way to understand them is that they are the implications of what follows. They are the so what part of the book. So we train our Bible study leaders to always ask that question. You know, you looked at what the Bible says, well, so what? What are the implications? 
and chapters 2 and 3 are the implications. And normally the implications are at the end. But I think what we've been given here is these are what you're going to see are the implications. Why should the church be like this? Well, watch and listen and you'll see why the church should obey what Jesus says in chapters 2 and 3. We'll come back to that in another week. Let me see if I can just um, help. And there's a bit of uh, space. Uh, well, there's not much space, a bit of space on the back of the notice sheet. If you want to uh, write this down, let me just see if we can uh, put this into a meaningful diagram. Uh, it is very simplistic, and uh, you will uh, feel free to disagree. Um, but if that's eternity, sorry, if that's the line between time and eternity, so it, it's very hard to diagram these things, of course, so uh, we'll just have to do our best. If that's time, and that's eternity, that's human history, that's what's in heaven. Um, the prologue, And the epilogue are, are in time. They're addressed to John. The letters to the seven churches are addressed to historical churches, historical matters. And I'm saying that four and five are taking us up into eternity. And then 20 one and uh, overlapping into 22 take us up into the future into the eternal future and so that just leaves the three series of seven and uh, oversimplifying uh, but I think this is useful we have the seals Um, is that um, and the trumpets And the bowls. And they're, they're concurrent. They're overlapping. So they're not end on end. You get to the end of the seals. And you go straight back to the beginning. You get to the end of the trumpets. You go straight back to the beginning. And so John is seeing from heaven. A heavenly, a God's eye view. Of human history. And human history is about judgment. There's a detail that we'll add. If we remember uh, a little bit later. So if I put the chapters on. Um, That's 6 to 7, that's 8 to 15, uh, that's 15 overlapping to 21. So I hope that's helpful. And as I say, the best thing you can do this week is read it, uh, put it to the test, feel free to disagree, you'll find all sorts of holes in it, Um, but I'm sure that's uh, um, helpful by its simplicity. Well, let's come now to the fourth and most important clue of all, Uh, What is Revelation actually about, just in the last couple of minutes? You may have picked up already that I don't think it's about the future. And that is the biggest and most common assumption that people bring to the book, that it's describing the future. Perhaps we're put off by that word prophecy in the opening verses. And so people read it like a kind of a biblical timetable of events that will happen in history one after another. But on that assumption, reading the book becomes an exercise in lining up the images with certain events in history. And as I said, if you read it that way, the blessing of Revelation will be very small indeed. I would say it will be no blessing at all. 
Others want to see the book about the final event, the return of Jesus Christ, the last great battle between God and his enemies at the time called Armageddon. But again, if that's how you read Revelation, I think you'll get very little blessing. In fact, I think you'll get no blessing at all. The message will remain closed if that's how we read it. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, we saw that the heading of the whole book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we took it to mean that this revelation comes from Jesus Christ. But there is another sense that we can read those words. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the revelation about Jesus Christ. The book is, in fact, presenting to us, as we've never seen it before, the glory and majesty of the person of Jesus Christ, the one who rules history. But can we be more precise than this? Well, one of the surprises you get as you read the book of Revelation is that it doesn't say anything about Jesus' life. There's one moment when a male child is mentioned, but there's very little about Jesus' life, his teaching, his miracles. And even more surprising, perhaps, is that there is no description of his return. There's plenty about the events that surround his return or accompany his return, but no real description of his return. The focus, the all-important center of the book, is the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. Because that is the great moment of victory over evil, one that lies in the past, not in the future. It is, in fact, the cross of Christ that is the key to this book. So I want to add that somewhere to my diagram. And I think I just want to stick it right across there. That's the thing that is central to human history. There, the battle between good and evil was fought in Jesus' flesh and won. It is the cross that is the turning point of all history. And the dominant image, if you come with me to chapter 5, is the one that combines the lion and the lamb. Chapter 5, verse 5. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. I suggest that these are the two most important verses in understanding the book. Jesus, the great king, the lion, has conquered, has triumphed, past tense. But how did he triumph? Not so much when he comes again at the end in this great battle. He has triumphed when he gave his life like a lamb slaughtered for the sins of his people. There he won the victory over death, guilt, and Satan, And the rest of the book is showing the ramifications in history and in eternity for that victory on the cross. So if we were to ask the question, what is happening in our world? What do we see when we lift the veil? We see Jesus the Lamb who was slain, ruling in heaven 
for he has conquered. He has overcome evil and death and will rule forever and ever. And now, in the present time, the ramifications of that event are being worked out as some follow him and others reject him. He holds the destiny of all in his hands. So why read Revelation? Well, why read Revelation? In order to share in the conquest of the Lamb. We're going to see, and I hope you're excited about this uh, journey over the next uh, nine weeks or so, uh, we're going to see that the book of Revelation is a stark, dramatic presentation of the reality of Christ's death and its consequences. It is graphic in its presentation of God's invincible judgment upon the world. It is a terrifying book. And reading it and studying it, I hope, will give us a clearer picture and a firmer grasp of those realities than we have now. But it's also an invitation. It is an invitation to avoid the judgment of God, to escape that judgment by sharing in the conquest of the Lamb. If we learn nothing else from this book, we must learn that in the words he says in chapter 1, Jesus is the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. It is to him that every knee will bow. The question for us is, will you bow the knee willingly while there is time, or on the last day when you have no choice? The invitation is to come to him now while there is time, to change your allegiance, to put your trust in his victory over evil, to be taken up into eternity on the basis of his death and resurrection, to put your faith in him and keep on trusting in him so that you too will overcome even in the midst of suffering and persecution. The invitation, you see, is not to look for signs in the future, but to wash our filthy, sin-stained clothes now in his blood so that in the future we might have the right to the tree of life may go through the gates of the city. The invitation is for whoever is thirsty to come and take the free gift of the water of life. To understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus to share in his victory, to have our sins forgiven, and to know that at the end we will stand singing the praise of God who is forever and ever and who is to come. That is the blessing of the book of Revelation. And before we read on, I want to invite you to share in the conquest of the Lamb. Trust in him. Don't trust in the world. Understand the reality. Make sure you say yes to that invitation. Well, Andy's going to read us chapter 5 now, and after that we're going to sing in response to what we've heard this morning. So chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. 
Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, singing, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power, forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. 